Okay, well, it's my honor uh, to introduce, and of course, it always sounds funny when I say John Moore, because, uh, but Dr. Jonathan Moore, who uh, has been a longtime friend, and so glad that uh, he and his wife Kim are here today, and uh, known John since uh, he came to the, got involved in the campus ministry down at Texas State University in San Marcos back in, I guess that would have been the early 90s, late 80s, sometime. I was 17. Huh? I was 17. You were 17. Wow. And uh, so. A few years ago, but uh, I never dreamed uh, what a what a wonderful friendship would develop uh, as a result of that work, and just uh, how much we admire the two of them and all that they're doing. Of course, John is a podiatrist, and he and Kim have uh, uh, really started a, a very successful practice uh, in Somerset, Kentucky, and several places there, and uh, just do a number of things. And then, if that weren't enough, uh, in raising their family and uh, running a successful uh, medical practice, but then. Also also recently just received his PhD uh, from Ambridge University in archaeology and so uh, what a, what a uh, wonderful academic pedigree and uh, and that's just a few of the things that uh, they get to do that they're involved in I love their children they've got how many grandchildren now two. yeah two and uh, just just a blessed family so John love and appreciate you and Kim both and all that you do for the kingdom and uh, also some of you might be interested in going on archaeology dig uh, in the future, and uh, John uh, is taking students from Fried Hardeman, is teaching a course in archaeology through Fried Hardeman University, and I know that you'll want to take advantage of that, and also he and Kim have a, uh, a ministry that's called uh, Seeing His World, right? Seeing His World, and uh, they take groups to various places in the Bible lands, and so if you're interested in going, I don't know if they have any places left uh, for the upcoming Egypt trip, but uh, you might talk to them about that, and then one that's pretty exciting that's coming up uh, in the future on uh, Reformation history with Rick Brumbach. So uh, take a look at their site, and I know you'll uh, benefit from that. So looking forward to your lesson today, John. Thank you for being with us. Come and preach to us. Amen. Thank you, sir. Well, it's an honor to be with you, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be in this kind of close quarters. And uh, I, uh, I may be one of the few that was invited here that does not preach full-time or on a fairly regular basis, I I love to teach, so this is a, a very good setting to do some teaching, and uh, uh, it may not be the best preaching, but uh, I'm really honored to be here, and and uh, I can't express to you how much John and his his wife Carla mean to me and to Kim, and uh, he did mention, but not only was he instrumental in my spiritual formation as a as a young man, but but uh, he. Uh, Later on, married Kim and I in Kentucky. So he uh, uh, was uh, uh, was uh, has been involved in our family for for many years. Uh, boy, this is a, a topic that uh, was was uh, a challenge, but but just so gratifying. And and before I get started, I I want to share with you just this concept that that ultimately, and I, I think it's pretty funny. Uh, he, he it says here you are an atheist. He says I was, and. Um, <laughs> I, I thought this would be a good start off to this concept that we're talking about of relying and trusting in the Lord and what he says. And uh, we're going to be looking at some Hebrew words. We're going to be looking at some some motifs of covenant in the Psalms. And so we're going to be digging in kind of deep. I'm going to go relatively fast because I want to try to cover as much as I can. But, but hopefully we'll have some time in the end to summarize things and really make it applicable to us. But when we look at certain psalms that talk about the, the covenant, and, and specifically in the book of Psalms, we're mostly referring to the 
Davidic covenant, the covenant that was made uh, between God and David, of course, it's just it's a covenant that's built upon the previous covenants that we see, uh, going all the way back to Adam and to Noah and to Moses. Um, and so there's so many, in order to understand what covenant means, we have to think about, we have to look at what that word means. And I bet the students here know that Hebrew word, barit. Barit, that is the Hebrew word for covenant. Uh, and that word basically has in its connotation the idea of cutting. If you've ever heard in our modern vernacular, hey, let's cut a deal, that idea of cutting a deal comes from this Hebrew word, barit. And, and it's, it's that root that I think is so important for us when we think about what, what is really a covenant. Well, we, 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 we get a beautiful picture of what covenant is when we go back to Genesis chapter 15 and you look at the covenant that was made by God and at the time, Abram. Uh, and when we think about what covenant means, this idea of treaty, compact, this uh, agreement, or uh, again, you, you see this phrase, again, make a covenant or cut a covenant, it meant a lot. And so in the ancient world, there was no more immutable, important guarantee than a covenant. And, and it, was, it was not to be taken lightly. And, and when you read Genesis chapter 15, and I wish we had time to really dig into that passage where God in a, in a nighttime vision uh, projects, well, he first, first of all tells, tells Abraham, tells Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And, and what does that mean? Well, he has Abram basically take these animals, gives them basically a laundry list of animals, tells them to cut them in half with the exception of the dove and the pigeon. He tells them to cut them in half. And so when he cuts them in half, what forms as a path between the two animals? Well, it's a bloody path. And in and, and, and ancient times, what, what uh, people that were forming a covenant would do was they would <laughs> walk between those animals that were cut in half. Now, that seems gruesome. That's something you would see in a horror film today. But that was a regular concept. It was a concept that they understood that we in our modern, ter- modern days don't really get. Now, not every covenant was consummated this way, but the basic idea of this type of covenant really carries through even, of course, to the final covenant. Uh, of course, that's the new covenant. And who consummated that with blood? Jesus. And again, so going back all the way to Genesis, going all the way to what a covenant is, and it's the cutting, it's a cutting of these animals and walking between them. But what's so interesting in Genesis chapter 15, I think it's fascinating, is that who is it that walks? Who is it that in this vision, in the form of a torch, in the form of a smoky pot, who is it that walks between? It's not Abraham. It's God that walks between those things. And so that's fascinating to me. And again, in Abraham's day, the covenants were sometimes agreed to by the sacrifice, the cutting in two. We talked about that. They would lay the pieces out in the ground. They were, again, committing themselves by walking between those two animals, but those, 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 those animals that were cut in two, it symbolized the seriousness of their intentions to keep the covenant. Because what they were saying, ultimately, as they walked between these carcasses, is that if we do not keep this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to us, happen to me. Think about that. Think about our relationship, our covenant with Christ. And it's importance for us today in terms of the fidelity that we have towards that covenant. It's, it's beyond serious. It's not just a shaking of hands between equal partners. 
And we, we learn that, again, over, over in the history of, of time when we look at suzerain treaties, which we'll look at in a second. But, of course, not every covenant, like I said, was, was agreed to in this way, but they, they ultimately placed their lives at risk. And when God walked between those animals, uh, he swore not uh, on anything else, but he swore on the highest authority you can, and that was himself and his deity. Uh, and after they passed these dead animals, the carcass was eventually burned, symbolizing, of course, the acceptance. But this, it, when we talk about covenant, we, I'm sure that you probably have heard about these suzerain treaties, these ancient treaties that we read about that, that existed. In fact, we have a lot of copies of these types of treaties. Uh, these treaties ultimately had several, several common motifs or common uh, characteristics. They, had, they held, number one, the identity of, of course, the suzerain, who was the sovereign. And, and ultimately, it would be the king. Now, suzerain treaties were not treaties between equal partners. They were, they were treaties between a king or someone of high authority and someone of low authority. And uh, ultimately, it was someone but the, a, a superior power and lesser power. And that's why when we, when we look at the covenant ideas in the Old Testament, they very much so mimic uh, these, these common features. They, they, they identified the suzerain, and ultimately, it was in the Old Testament, it was God, Yahweh. The, the, the history of the relationship between the parties and, and what you see in, in the Old Testament, and, and even in the Psalms, is a constant reminder of what God had done for them, especially in delivering them out of Exodus, at redeeming them, rescuing them out of slavery. It's a constant reminder. And then the obligations placed upon the vassal, the the, the deposit of copies of the treaty in the temple, uh, the divine witness to the treaty, and of course the series of blessings. And and what's what's so wonderful is is being able to see a manifestation of this, of course, uh, when we read about Joshua. When he comes in, of course, uh, Moses tells him that when you come into the land, I want you to, to set up, of course, a, a, a temple, a, not a temple, but a, an altar for the blessings uh, on Mount Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal. And just not long ago, I had a chance to, 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 to walk around the, that, that what, what many believe to be the altar at Mount Ebal. And it's just stunning to think about. What, what, what were they doing? Well, they were announcing and, again, refreshing their minds of the covenant that had been, that had been made. So, this, these sacred binding agreements, think about this, and, and think about the importance of, these, of, of this agreement that had serious benefits and serious penalties, depending on the specific covenant. And then, of course, we have a reminder of the previous covenants, and this is just a reminder of the covenant between Abraham, the covenant of course with Noah in Genesis chapter 6, and then a covenant was made with Israel in and of itself in Exodus chapter 19 and 24. And then what we're going to see as we look at the, the idea and the concept of covenant in the Psalms is a, is a recapitulation of the, of, the, of the covenant made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so when we, when we look at Psalms like Psalms 89, which is a, a beautiful picture of, a, of the reminder of the, of, the, of, the, of the covenant that was made in 2 Samuel, uh, it's made up of several parts, and we'll look at that in just a second. So when God appeared to Moses, this is one of my, uh, this is the second Hebrew word that, that uh, there will be a quiz, and I'll ask you to pronounce all of these correctly. <laughs> But uh, I bet some of the students back here already know some of these words. This 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 word that that it, it's, it's, it has an H in the sound, but it starts with a K. It's it's like that guttural. It's chesed. 
It's a very important word because that word is translated, it was, it was translated by the King James translators as loving kindness. And, and what I think is a better definition of that is, a, is basically a covenant keeping. Uh, it's, a, it's a love that involved keeping the covenant. Uh, and that, that word you're going to see ever loving kindness over and over again in the Psalms. Um, and so um, I think it's very important. So when we look at this word unfailing love, faithful love, steadfast love, loyal love, that is all kind of capsulized in this word chesed. And that is the root word that you'll see again manifesting and goes demonstrating God's again compassion, grace, and ever loving kindness. And this word again throughout the Torah, when Israel experienced God's covenant faithfulness, again his his love in the covenant, again covenant faithfulness is I think probably the best definition of chesed and favor. Um, again, you, you see that word over and over again, again describing again God's faithfulness when they when they were facing economic difficulties, when they when they were facing battle, when they faced all those types of things. That word comes over and over. And again, we'll look at we'll look at some of the psalms that talk about this. But again, while Israel would praise the perfections of God, Yahweh, His kingship, they also yearned for the fullness of redemption. They wanted to see God not only be uh, a faithful covenant partner, but they wanted to, to understand and, and sense redemption. And in many times, as I don't know many of you heard the, the lesson earlier on, on the laments, the Psalms of the Lament, many times the people of God did not feel as though God was being faithful to His covenant uh, because they faced difficult times, challenges, it's a constant reminder of our lives today of, of uncertainty. And many times we think, well, where are you, God? How can we be sure that you're a true covenant keeper? How do we know that for sure? How do we know? How can we have the security of knowing? Um, that's a, that's, a, that's a, a question that we have to always go back to and look at how God in the past and history was always faithful to his covenant. Even when times, even times when you just God maybe doesn't manifest Himself, uh, and we'll look a, a little bit at that just in a, in a few minutes. So, what I want to do in this next the time that we have left, just about maybe twenty minutes or so, there are five theological kind of covenant motifs that we see in the book of Psalms. And I'm going to just kind of go through those and then we'll kind of wrap things up. Um, and so what you see is in the book of Psalms, you see this idea of praise and honor. You see lament. You see all those types of things. But you also see the idea uh, of covenant keeping in Psalms that that also entails the vindication of honor, the restoration of status that they had, deliverance from shame, humiliation of enemies. Those were all concepts that the people felt in that covenant relationship with God. And so the first thing I want to look at is this idea of praise and honoring God as as a covenant keeper. And we see lots of praise throughout the book of Psalms, but these passages that I'm going to highlight to you are specific in, in respect to they're praising and honoring God because he's a covenant keeper, because he's because of his ever-loving kindness and all those types of things. So Psalms 136 is a beautiful passage. And again, you see in this passage this idea that his love or his chesed 
endures forever. And you see that at the end of several verses in this, in this Psalms, 136. The reason for praising God, of course, is because of His beneficial acts, His, his, his benevolent acts. And since He is the God of gods, you see again this reference in verse 3 that He is the Adonai. This Adonai. What does that mean? Adonai, is, it's, it's, it's more than just a name that speaks of a relationship. But it, it's more of, of, a, of a complete submission to God's possession. You are totally God's possession, this Adonai. Um, and, and again, you, you, see, you see Moses referring to God. You see Abram referring to God as Adonai or Master. In other words, I'm completely His. That's a beautiful, again, a beautiful concept. Verses 23 through 34 of Psalms 136 talks about God's remembrance of the covenant. And, and that's ultimately what we're talking about here today, is, is that when we think God doesn't remember the covenant, when we think our lives are, 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 are really just random acts of, in other words, the randomness and the chaos that we see around us. Uh, I mean, COVID that we just had, of course, is, is a perfect illustration of, of just the feeling as though that, that the world and life and everything we know is just spiraling out of control. Um, we are to be reminded, and we can be reminded in the book of Psalms that God always remembers His covenant because He made that covenant. And He is a God who can't break covenant. And one of the things we learn about God and all that He can do, we, there are some things God can't do. The New Testament tells that God can't lie. And we can, He can be trusted. So the psalmist affirms his trust in the Lord as a worthy covenant partner. Uh, And we see again in the opening of the hymn this note of thanksgiving. And we see, give thanks to the Lord for his good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to God of gods. Again, that word Adonai. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Him who alone, who does great wonders. Again, reminding them of what he had done for them. His lo- Again, see this again in verse 8. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His covenant faithfulness endures forever. It's powerful to me to think about that and contemplate that. Uh, let's see. So let me advance that my own. Okay, it looks like we've kind of reached a frozen point here. There we go. Okay. So in Psalms 144, again, it, we're, we're point number two. Uh, so we, we mentioned this idea of God's, again, covenant keeping. Uh, but number two, we see the shamefulness of God's people manifested in respect to the covenant. So uh, it, obviously we're finite beings. We're unreliable. Uh, we're, we're unworthy of God's love. And despite our weaknesses and despite the fact that God knows that we won't fully be able to uh, covenant keep, the remarkable things that he still loves us. <laughs> and that's the one thing I, you know, if someone, if you've ever done a deal with someone, if you've ever been a part of a negotiation and someone rubs you wrong or someone cheats you, would you ever do business with them again? How many of you have been to a car dealership and felt like someone ripped you off? Or you went to the mechanic and, you know, what you thought was going to be a $100 job is a $1,000 job. Are you going to keep going back? Are you going to keep doing business with that person? I don't. I wouldn't do business with that person because, well, that's just because of who I am. But God isn't me, thankfully. God doesn't think like me. God keeps giving us chance after chance and says, ultimately, 
that there's going to be a need for blood to be shed. And, and one of the, the beautiful pieces of covenant theology in the book of Psalms that you can't miss, it may not be expressed in this word, but you see grace. And his willingness to covenant keep with us despite our I mean, gross efforts and, 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 and our failures, the fact that he continues and stays in covenant with us is grace. And the fact that he's willing to cut another covenant but a final covenant where his, his own son's blood would be shed is the ultimate fulfillment of grace and covenant keeping. So we see this idea of, O Lord, and this, again, the shamefulness of God's be. We see that in verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? That's the way I would think. I said, how, do you, how could you possibly love us or care for us? Because we're so unstable. Uh, again, this idea of care, the Hebrew word yada, um, of the Lord's, it, it's basically, again, is nothing less than, again, covenantal commitment in that respect. So again, um, it, the shamefulness of God's people, this, this idea, again, manifest in Psalms 25 too, do not let me be put to shame or let my enemies triumph over me. I love that song that we sing. Uh, and this sounds like a lament, but it's also, again, looking, it, he, he says in Psalms 25, 18 and 20, let's look at what he says. Look on my anguish and my distress and take away all my sins. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Uh, again, again, it, 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 when I think about this, I think about Christ. And ultimately, the psalmist may not have had this image, but ultimately, when we think about this idea of taking refuge in someone, uh, I think of Christ, about, uh, not only from his, the standpoint of him rescuing us, but I can take refuge in his sacrifice. Number three, honoring the faithful through vindication. Um, and again, this idea—we, I think there's a whole—I think there's a session on impre- imprecatory psalms. This idea of uh, of judgment, um, and, and you, you see that idea of invoking judgment um, based on calamity or curses upon one's enemies. It's a fascinating idea. In Psalms 35, the Lord's likened to a warrior. And when I think of covenant, when I think of that idea, um, I think of someone going to battle on my behalf. And I, I think of God walking through that path of blood, um, manifest as a, as, a, as a burning light, a burning torch and smoke, just like he did on Mount Sinai. You know, I, I think of God, you know, and again, in that dream in Genesis chapter 15, it's God manifests himself as a smoking pot. And you go, what smoking pot? What, what does that mean? Well, how many times does God manifest to his people in smoke? Think what happens in Mount Sinai. And then also think about himself as, as fire, the burning bush in Exodus. Uh, so many pictures, of, again, of, of, of God going to battle on our behalf. Again, the weapons symbolize God's readiness to defend us. Uh, in verse 35, uh, of this beautiful psalms plead my cause O Lord with them that strive with me fight against them that fight against me because God will do that because he's again a covenant keeper um, I love this idea that's manifest in, 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 in referencing in, uh, not only in the psalms but in Exodus chapter 6 I am your salvation and, and you can't ever read that in the Old Testament and not think of one person who actually had this name so this, this Hebrew word, this Hebrew idea of I am your salvation or Yahweh is your salvation, 
um, there, was a, there was a great man in the book of Joshua named Joshua who carried this name. But there's someone else who carried that name that became our salvation. Who was that? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus of course, being Yahshua, um, promised to be a deliverer of His own. A deliverer of those who He has covenant with. The salvation signifies more than just reconciliation with God, but being reconciled, again, with the God that's going to come to His defense, that's going to stand up for Him. So the Lord has remembered. Psalms 115 calls on the house of Israel or the house of Aaron, those who fear the Lord, to trust in the Lord in their affliction. The psalmist reminds the people that the Lord has remembered. And when we think of this redeemer warrior concept that the book of Psalms presents to us, again, it comes to, it brings in this righteousness. And the psalmist, of course, wants to sing praise to him together with all of those of the redeemed for their troubles, oppressions, and afflictions. Uh, and again, we see this beautiful concept that, that again, Yahweh is a divine warrior going on our behalf as a covenant keeper. And number four, honoring the servant king the Messianic Psalms and the Davidic Covenant. Now, I, I could have, and I, I, I thought about just literally spending this entire time in Psalms 89. And I have a few slides, so let's go through them quickly. But open your Bibles. Uh, let's look at Psalms 89. And if you're gonna, if you want to, you know, recapitulate or, or take moment, take a moment to just consider the beautiful nature of the covenant, the Davidic Covenant specifically, and how it foreshadowed. Christ, it's beautifully set up in Psalms 89. Now, Psalms 89 can be divided up into two parts. One is, of course, this, this reminder of the beautiful nature of the covenant that, that, that he has made and that the, faithful, the faithfulness of God and the covenant with David. And then the second half is a lament. And so you wonder, well, what's happening? What, what happens uh, in that respect? It's because life becomes unpredictable. Uh, even in the moment of our greatest praise, life can become such that we just don't understand where God is. In one moment we could be praising God, the next moment be wondering, where are you, God? Does not sound, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect picture of our lives. Our lives aren't always roses. and our, our, Thankfully, our lives aren't always laments. But, but, but in this concept, the Davidic covenant is famous for its promise of an eternal throne for David. Um, but what's interesting in the book of Psalms, in chapter 89, is that he doesn't start off referring to David as king. He doesn't, he doesn't start off referring him to anything other than but what? His servant. Uh, because ultimately God demanded of David for him to submit himself, even though he had been given these great gifts. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, what? My servant. And that's the, that's the fascinating component of this. And again, it is a picture of Jesus. You know, what was it that made Jesus unique? Uh, his humility and the fact that he became a servant. What did he do right before he was nailed to a cross? He washed his disciples' feet. Something a servant does. And that's the life he led. And that ultimately is kind of pictured here uh, as our ultimate and final redeemer. He would be a servant in this respect. So Psalms 89 refers to David also as God's chosen one, but David is not the king through that would receive these, these, these gifts because of his own strength or might, but it's because it was given to him. In the Psalms 89, 24 through 25, the psalmist indicates that the Lord himself will increase David's kingdom and cause it to flourish. Uh, and he says here in verse 24, my faithful love, 
again, what is that? Maybe my, my ever-loving kindness, my, my covenant-keeping, my chesed, love will be with him, and through my name his horn shall be exalted. Again, that's covenant-keeping. Uh, verse 24, my faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. David's a good king with good intentions, but ultimately David had to be a servant which implies, of course, a privilege and an intimacy. But clearly this role required submission and sacrifice. David had to do as Yahweh instructed, which is the same, of course, for us today. So we, we also see this concept. Look at verse 26. Maybe circle this. This is a beautiful Hebrew word. Uh, sir Yashuati. So this idea of sir, what is that? That's rock. My, of my salvation. Again, we see that word Yahshua that we referred to earlier. Yahshuaati. So, Sir Yahshuaati. Rock of my salvation. Boy, it just stirs my soul to be standing here in 2023 with all the chaos and the unknown around us and to be able to say that God is my rock of my salvation. He's the rock of my salvation. That has never more been true because of Jesus. He is recognized as also the firstborn. I'll tell you what's interesting, and I, I caught this later on in the study. If you, if you maybe make a note in chapter 89, of Psalm 89, and make a reference to Revelation chapter 1, John is in a very similar situation. As we, as we read the second half of the book of, of, of Psalm 89, it, it, it becomes chaotic. It becomes a question of where, where, why haven't you fulfilled my covenant? Why, where are you? And it's very much so an image that we see that, or the, the context of where John is. John's in, he's being exiled. And in chapter 1, he is going to, on two occasions, you know what he's going to quote? Psalms 89. I'll highlight this. But one of the things he quotes, and again, you'll find this in, 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 in Revelation chapter 1, my firstborn. Um, I think it's beautiful because, of course, that, that same phrase is, is reference to Jesus himself. Uh, but this idea that he's my firstborn, even as Israel was the firstborn of the Lord in Exodus chapter 4, he would take on a whole new meaning in the book of Revelation because, of course, of, of Christ's life. So six times in Scripture, Jesus is declared to be what? The firstborn of God. So you can't go to Psalms 89 and not see Jesus. Um, and, and that ultimate covenant that would be that would be fulfilled by him. And these passages again declare the pre-existence, the sovereignty, the redemption, all those beautiful pieces. And then we see this word again that I that I love, Elion, the most exalted, Elion among the nations, even as Yahweh is the most high. Uh, the creator of the heavens. Again, giving praise to God. Um, but what's interesting to me is that, again, these privileges, promises, covenants were going to be given to David, but ultimately what would happen is that these things would be truly consummated with Yahweh's Son, uh, Jesus Himself. Um, and, and look at verse 28 through 29 of Psalms 89. Um, again, we're, we're wrapping up. I know it's uh, been a long day. Um, verses 28 through 29. His covenant, his the berit, of his love, Hased, will never fail. We have those two Hebrew words there, Barit and Hased, right there in this beautiful passage, again confirming God's covenant keeping. The faithfulness of, and the love of God extend forever, and again, stresses the lasting character of David's rule in this case. 
And then in, in verse 30 through 37, uh, through the Davidic covenant, we see this divine granting of, of David's dynasty. Again, all these things. Uh, but its promises are conditional. Uh, 30 through 31, again, talks. Look, look, at the, look at those two references in verse 30 and 31, those two words, if. You see them there? You may want to circle them. When you see those, that word, if, um, again, it, again, some conditionality that we see in this respect. Um, and if he was not steadfast in his devotion, he would break covenant. Again, sin and iniquity. Verse 32, expressions of rebellion against the Lord. The Lord would not withhold the rod. Look at this in, verse, uh, in, in, in that passage here. Um, a symbol of authority, instrument for inflicting. Um, uh, again, verses 34, I will not break my covenant. I will not go back on what I promised. Uh, I will not remove my loyal love from him nor be unfaithful to his promise. And so we see this, this idea again of, of covenant keeping, his love extending to his offspring of David and through humankind show the contempt for covenant. The Lord will never violate his own covenant. Uh, and again, we see that concept here. And again, you see his commitment to David's place in history of the redemption. Uh, again, when you think of the covenant of God, you think of what's, what's the consistency of the sun and moon. You see those references in verse 36 and 37. So his, the history of his redemption, the, 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 the confirmability, the reliability can be on par with, again, the sun and the moon, <coughs> given reference there. And then that foundation of assurance that we see. The covenant promises of God throughout the Old Testament, including all those forever assurances of God to David, again, would, would become again more manifest with his son. Um, okay. God has, had promised to David that his heir would sit on the throne forever. Uh, and again, this covenant that we see here that's consummated all the way back in, 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 in 2 Samuel uh, was to be accompanied by rest from all their enemies. The confidence of God's people in his word to David, uh, again, was, was, was part of their everyday life. So in Christ, this relationship has been made even firmer through his reign as the Son of God. And there can be no acceptance with the Father except through Jesus Himself. So we see in Psalms 89, Jesus' messianic role. We see again His role as not only a king, but also a suffering servant. And that's, you know, that's the challenge that many people have today in Judaism. They can't identify, they can't reconcile the idea of a suffering Messiah along with the king. Um, and even Jesus' own disciples got mixed up on this. They were confused. They had challenges in dealing with this. Uh, but again, Jesus shows us through his life that he was a suffering servant, uh, but also, of course, a king. And lastly, the need for redemption and God's unfailing love. Uh, look at verse uh, Psalms 3, verse 9. Vain is the salvation of man. Salvation is of the Lord. And then he says in Psalms 85, I will bear, I will hear what the Lord God will speak in for me, for he will speak peace unto his people and unto his saints, and unto them who are converted to the heart. Surely his salvation is near to them that fear him. Again, redemption of God's unfailing love. Uh, and again, we see that God in the flesh became, was destined to come and redeem us. That has so much more meaning of those, the, all those old sacrifices, all of those things that you read about in the Old Testament, all the, the tabernacle sacrifices, all of them, of course, really mean nothing unless you understand who Jesus was. Um, the price of this redemption, 
Again, remember Psalms 21, 22. We talked about this in the, it was referred to in the laments earlier. Oh, my God, my God, look upon me. Why hast thou forsaken me? Uh, again, we see, again, manifestations of all those things converting into Jesus. We see the suffering Savior, suffering Savior in those passages in, in, in Psalms 21, 22. Uh, Psalms 21, verses 1. Uh, and through eight, 8 and 9, all that they saw me have laughed me to scorn. They have spoken with the lip and wagged the head. Uh, he hoped in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Does, does that not sound a lot like what took place at Golgotha? Uh, it does for me. Uh, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? So death could not contain our Redeemer. When he arose, he rose for us. Uh, and that's ultimately what the gospel, lesson, the gospel is about. Um, in our afflictions, we can turn to the language of the book of Psalms and understand who God is, why we can rely on Him, and that everlasting love and fulfillment of His covenant. And again, that idea, Hased, describes the disposition of God then and now. Um, and that's what we need to remember. Uh, it's manifested ultimately in His forgiveness and His grace. Because we do not, we are not an equal partner. We do not deserve to still be in covenant with Him. Uh, but we do that because of His grace, and that's ultimately what it's all about. Um, the world tells us one thing. It tells us that if we chase after pleasure, if we chase after position, power, all those types of things, the world says we need more. The idols of this world will never satisfy us. The things that we, that we oftentimes find ourselves reaching out for and grasping the most will never satisfy. We foolishly keep straining towards those things and they're all false promises. But ultimately, through the lens of Psalm 89 and through the idea of covenant in our, in our lives, the later Jews saw the figure of the servant king in David's Psalms. They struggled to combine these ideas. But can both the suffering servant and the victorious king be foreshadowed in the same figure? Ultimately, yes. We see the humiliation of the Davidic king in the days of Psalms 89. We see Jesus, Jesus would become that, that servant king. One of the beautiful passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, as we close, all enemies will be put under his feet, his throne will be forever, and his dominion will have no bounds. Uh, ultimately, and historically we know, that the, the Davidic kingdom ultimately was a, a political failure. And if we looked at God's covenant promise as some political promise or some political fulfillment, we've missed the boat. It disappeared with the exile. The post-exilic attempts for its revival failed. But 2 Samuel clearly laid out the hope for something greater through David's son, and that would be Jesus. I like to. I heard it put this way, and I put it in the slide. Ultimately, Psalms were not written for our information. They're written for our transformation. And I hope that in this session and all the sessions that you've been to, that that's the truth. That you haven't just gained information. That you've somehow been transformed. It invites us to speak to our God, but to hear Him and to confess that His Son Christ is the Lord of God, Lord of Lords. That He's a covenant keeper. He loves us. That it calls us to obey Him. And when we think about, as we close, this idea of cutting a covenant... Uh, when God swore His promise to Abraham, He swore Himself because that was the greatest of all things. God graphically and physically showed us what covenant keeping is. Ultimately, if I don't keep this promise, then may I be like those animals around me. May I, the infinite, be cut in half by the finite. 
Um, and ultimately, the idea of, of circumcision, that, that whole idea of circumcision ultimately was about reminding them of that covenant. And of course, it involved a cutting, a cutting away of flesh. Uh, again, that, it, it was every time that they had that done, every time that they thought of that, they were to think about their covenant because ultimately if they were not faithful to that covenant, then let me be, of course, ashamed. And again, this concept should, I hope, as it did for me, burn an image in your mind of what our God does for us. He walks that pathway in between and he becomes ultimately what he says in Genesis chapter 15. He, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. Beautiful picture of God in the book of Psalms. Thank you so much. Amen. Amen. Amen.